believe I gave this sermon is Building Community, Contending for Justice. So that's what I'll be addressing. And um, of course, uh, there's a close link between authentic community, authentic relationships and justice. Arguably, where there is no justice, relationships at the very least suffer and um, ultimately become inauthentic. So we are trying, as our vision statement says, to build community. But in that community, we are trying to build in a just way, in a fair way. And, um, and, and ultimately, any community which is unjust will prove unstable. Now, we live in an unfair world. I, I hope you already knew that. I don't think that'll be a, a revelation to anyone, right? Um, it's unfair in all sorts of ways, and there are lots of reasons for it. And there's a lot of talk in our culture now about justice, and that's a good thing, isn't it? It's good that people are concerned for justice, and there's all kinds of solutions being offered. And essentially, an awful lot of political debate basically comes down to different uh, solutions to the question of building a just and fair society. And um, it's interesting because I speak to pastors of other churches from time to time, of course this sort of thing doesn't happen here, but uh, sometimes Christians begin to get so drawn to one particular political vision or answer, they start to try and introduce it into the church. And you find, I mean, I think of one church I know where somebody became a firm advocate of one political uh, approach. It was one that most of us would think was not appropriate uh, for Christians. I won't go any further than that. And all over Facebook, every two minutes, he was saying, you know, try and circulate to the church, trying to get everyone in the church to watch this video or watch this speaker. Now, um, there's a reason why I chose to become a minister, not a politician. Um, and one of those reasons, well, one of the reasons is I'm not sure, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to be successful as a minister than be successful as a politician, right? The standards uh, required are a bit lower. Um, it, but more importantly, I have no confidence in any political system ultimately to solve the problems of the world. They were arguing about it back in the day, they are arguing about it today, and they will still be arguing about it. Now, I don't mean by that say there's no meaning in politics. Of course we need good political leaders, and goodness me, we should pray for them. Wouldn't it be nice if somewhere we could point to a political leader who consistently just shows integrity for a start? That would be a good start, wouldn't it? And I have absolutely no interest in politicising the church. Sometimes because I talk of God's care for the poor, people of one person in particular, this was here, said, I think you're a socialist. They could not be more wrong. I'm not a socialist because I think socialism doesn't work. But the truth is I don't think capitalism particularly works either. We're, we're caught in a situation that because of basically human greed and selfishness, any political system will get corrupted by the people that operate it. And for me, the, the most important thing is that we develop checks and balances within our systems that stop individuals having too much power, because whenever they do, they always make a mess of things. But what's our job as a church then? 
I mean, there's, there's loads I could say about justice because it's a theme of the Bible from cover to cover, actually. And even when it's not being mentioned, which it is extremely frequently, it's implicit in just about every page of Scripture. God is a God of justice. He loves people equally. He loves all people fiercely. And he is outraged by injustice. That, that's cover to cover. So in one sense, there's no end to what I could say. But I want to start then with this passage in John 13. And I'm going to rattle through in about the next 17 minutes or so. I'm going to rattle through all sorts of stuff. We, we could easily spend a very fruitful couple of hours and, and then we could have discussion and back and forth. But we can't do that for obvious reasons. So I'm just going to stick to an hour and three quarters. No, it's a joke. <laughs> 17 minutes. But, you know, please go away and look at these Bible passages in greater depth and consider uh, whether I'm treating the Bible fairly and applying it well to the, con the, the context we find ourselves in. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives a new command, which is not really a new command at all, right? Because it's there in the Old Testament. Love your neighbour as yourself. He says to the disciples, love one another. I mean, that's, that's about as basic a command as you find in the whole of Scripture. Love one another. And he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Perhaps that's the new element. How did Christ love you and me? That's how we are to love one another in the church. He stepped down from a position of power unimaginable, wealth unimaginable, significance unimaginable, and came and identified with the poor, the poorest of the poor, so that he could win people who were so far beneath him, it, we can't even begin to understand it, he came to win them and sacrifice himself for them. Now, he then said, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples by that quality of love. We'll return to that thought at the end. Pretty soon after uh, Jesus' life and death, at the very beginnings of the church, it appears, the best reconstruction we've got is that communities started to emerge of people who had the beginnings of Christian faith in Jerusalem and Galilee at first. The ones in Galilee may even have started before Jesus' death as he, had, he was visiting towns in that region and preaching the gospel to them, preaching the kingdom to them. And as, you can read about it in Acts, as the gospel spread across the Roman Empire, essentially, the ancient Near East, um, the communities that emerged included people who didn't normally hang together in society. Men and women, mixing, that created some issues. Slaves and free people, and Gentiles and Jews, the great racial divide. So you had economic divides in the church, you had the, the, the issue of gender and gender roles coming under threat because as uh, people encountered the gospel, men and women started to respond to Jesus, and 
Gentiles started to respond to Jesus and slaves and free, and, and free people, slaves and slave owners in the same church, both now justified by Christ. Can you imagine the complexity of trying to manage that? It caused all sorts of problems. I mean, a lot of the New Testament is basically addressing the problems of these folk being included in the church together and all the issues that that created and how the apostles taught and applied the gospel such that those issues could be resolved. And they are, and, and amidst these problems, the basic call to these very different people was to love each other as Jesus had loved the disciples. And the role of the Holy Spirit, sometimes I think in our highly individualized culture, and certainly this would be a failing of some aspects of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, of which I am a fan. But one of the failings would be, we start to see the Spirit as there to help us achieve our potential. We live in a world where people self-actualizing, becoming who they can be, is very much on the agenda. And we can, the danger we can is that we can draw the spirit and, and, and ask the spirit to collude with that agenda of self-actualization. I want to be the person I can be, and the spirit's going to come and help me do that. And we come into the church, and we bring that basically ungodly attitude, and we think the church is now the playground for me to parade who I am. And brilliant, if the spirit gives me a few gifts, I can parade those too. That's pretty much the exact opposite of what the Spirit is trying to do. The Spirit teaches the fruit of the Spirit are not just there so that you as an individual can become a person of integrity and, and, and develop the character of Jesus, although it certainly is that, but it's so that actually in the community we'll form communities that fulfill Jesus' command to love one another. So instead of being marked by the striving of people who are all seeking to build their significance, which we see outside of the church and sadly at times see inside the church, what we actually have is a community of people who come alongside each other in love and truth and integrity and fulfil Jesus' command. Well, what were the outcomes? How did, how did the church try to resolve some of these problems? Well, as I say, it's almost every page of the New Testament. If you start with the book of Acts, um, we see that from the earliest days of the church, as the Spirit began to fill people, there was an immediate concern that the poor were supported. You'll find this theme in Acts chapter 2, just following the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10. Read them. Almost immediately, people were starting to engage in radical acts of generosity to ensure that the poor were looked after within the church community. Read it for yourselves. Um, and furthermore, in these communities, Paul and James in particular spelt out that those people who would be less likely to be successful or be acceptable in wider culture, they were to be given special honour. So we were almost to bend over backwards as, uh, as church communities to incorporate people who outside of the church 
would probably be pushed to the margins. We're actually to make them the centre of our church. I, I can't help but pause to tell you one of my favourite ever illustrations of this. And I, I don't know the details, they don't really matter. There was a bishop in the, in the ancient church who was commanded by the secular authorities to bring all the treasures of the church and lay them at the feet of the secular authorities. He said, well, it'll take me a couple of days to gather them all up. And two days later, he duly appeared before the secular authority and said, I've brought them. The ruler said, well, where are they? He said, they're just outside, come with me. He brought them out and there were all the poor, those who suffered physical disabilities, the widows, the orphans. He said, here they are, the treasures of the church. Do you want them? We in the church want them. And more than just wanting them, we don't just want them so they come and sit and add to our numbers. We want to love them. The rich were consistently called to humility and radical generosity. You'll have to decide which category you fit. They were warned not to be arrogant. Being rich very easily leads to arrogance because what you begin to tell yourself is, I have achieved all this by dint of hard work and my own skill. If others don't have this, it's because they didn't work hard enough or they were feckless in some way. Tell yourself that narrative if you like, but you're inviting God's displeasure. They started to form communities of radical inclusivity. Um, Acts, uh, we see this theme coming out particularly in Acts 4, where uh, Peter and John are going to the temple and they encounter a lame person, a person whose legs don't work, right? And they heal him. And the first thing he does is he runs into the temple. We can easily miss the significance of this. Lame people were not allowed into the temple. It wasn't just an amazing miracle. It was an act of God coming into someone's life prophetically and saying, you're welcome now, in you go. Um, Acts 15, one of the most important chapters in the New Testament for understanding the New Testament, tells the story of what happened when there was a bit of a crisis about the inclusion of the Gentiles. See, Jews and Gentiles hated one another. They would have nothing to do with each other. Jews wouldn't eat at the same table as Gentiles. They referred to them as dogs. Okay, that was a frequent understanding of Gentiles. Gentiles thought that Jews were just religious cranks. And uh, Jews were scattered across the ancient world, but they always had their own quarters in the cities. They lived by themselves, kept themselves to themselves. They were kind of tolerated. When they started coming together in communities, some of the Jews started to say, well, hold on a minute. We're the people of God. If the Gentiles are going to be included, they need to become like us first. They need to be circumcised. They need to go through all the processes of coming under the law and doing the things that God has required of us. And there was a big hoo-ha about it. And essentially what happened was there was a conference in Jerusalem. You read about it in Acts 15. And in the end they decided there was just two rules for coming into the kingdom of God and being within it in terms of what was demanded of people by, by means of their conduct. They didn't have to get circumcised. They essentially did not have to become Jews to become Christians, which is good news for us Gentile men, right? 
bit of light relief though, you can laugh. Because I think numbers would be radically down on our membership list if you had to become a Jew before you became a Christian. Two rules were no idolatry, no sexual immorality. And I can't help thinking one of the reasons for that is idolatry and sexual immorality perpetuate injustice, among other things. The implications of the sexual revolution in Western culture, one of the horrendous outcomes has been for children. They are almost never considered. Many of them never even see the light of day. And those that do are often born into conditions that are unfair on them. But that's okay as long as we're free to continue operating sexually as we want to. Hmm. So in the church there was to be no idolatry and no sexual immorality, but other than that they did not lay any requirements on the Gentiles to come into the kingdom. This was radical inclusivity. This was someone in apartheid South Africa saying, I don't care what the authorities say, I will not have segregation in the church, it's an abomination to God, we're going to have a church and we're going to defy the authorities. It was radical. Jews and Gentiles simply didn't mix, but they did in the church. Then the church started addressing injustice beyond its boundaries, not so much by seeking to influence the political system. Well, they didn't have democracy. There was no chance of them influencing the political system, but by taking direct action. One of the best examples of this, I think, is uh, the way in which in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, it was a frequent practice that if a woman had a baby she didn't want, or the family didn't want, or she couldn't care for, or whatever, they would expose the baby. What would happen is the baby would be taken out uh, in somewhere outside the city and just left. And you can imagine the baby wouldn't survive long under those, that, those, those situations. At various points, Christians decided they would go and rescue those babies. What an amazing testimony of the love that the church had rescuing these exposed babies. And within the church, the marginalised started to come to the fore. Examples of women and slaves and Gentiles emerging into positions of leadership. Or, if you like, Paul in Ephesians addressing children in his letter. As far as I'm aware, relying on uh, authorities who would know better than me, there is no other example in the ancient world of anyone ever addressing children in a letter. They were just to be seen and not heard. But Paul starts to say to people, actually, this love of Jesus will, will be evidenced by how you treat your slaves, how you treat your children, how you love your wife. All these people who in wider culture at the time had very low social status. He's starting to say to people who have social status, if you love Jesus, it will be evidenced by how you treat these folk. And then we have the highest teaching about this in the New Testament in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is specifically, in its early chapters, addressing the question of Jews and Gentiles together in the church and what that means. And in chapter 2, verse 14, let's start with 13, chapter 2, verse 13, Ephesians, Paul says to the Gentiles, now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So those who were 
pushed to the margins of God's purposes in the, in the Old Testament era, now are welcome in. And then he says this, for he, that is Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, that is Jews and Gentiles, they are now one in the church, and has destroyed the barrier, the ethnic barrier between them, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law, the Jewish law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself, in Christ, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And in chapter 3 he says this, um, God's intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we had more time we'd look at it in more depth. But suffice to say, this mirrors John 13. Jesus says, by this will all people know, you are my disciples, that you love one another. Here Paul is saying, the cross holds all the resources to reconcile all the divisions in society. Because the cross humbles every person who comes before it. And they must lay all their status and their power aside. And say, actually, my life... Uh, was in such a mess and left to my own devices I will cause such carnage in my own life and in the lives of others that the only answer was this profound answer of the cross but God says if you will kneel before it and humble all your pride then he'll give you his spirit and teach you how to love like Jesus it'll be a process you'll learn more and more about actually underneath it all, all your plenty of room for ongoing humility. But through it all, we will build a community where we can say to people outside the church, with all your theorising about how to deal with issues of justice, and I'm not knocking any of those, but in the end they will be limited. At best they will restrain wickedness. In the end, God's answer is the cross and the church. The cross, the spirit, and the church. I want to be part of a community like this. You know, we all bring our baggage into the church. We're part of society which has tons of baggage with this, and we could spend hours talking about it. Um, and of course, we have our personal baggage where we have either been oppressors of others, and we will all been in that category at times, or we have suffered personal oppression, and we will have all experienced that and it scars us in different ways. And there are terrible histories of oppression and injustice. God certainly doesn't like it. Sometimes people say, why can't God just forgive? Why all this business of the cross? That is to, that is to misunderstand how serious the problem is and how far God wants to go to address it. We have terrible histories, both personally and socially. Let's not kid ourselves. The Spirit's primary function 
is to bring people to Jesus, bring them in repentance before the cross, instill the presence of the living God within them and include them within a better community, a community of love and justice and forgiveness, free from the sexual immorality and idolatries which often perpetuate injustice and free to serve the living God together. And this is the kind of community I want to be a part of for three reasons. Such a community brings delight to God's heart, just as, just as injustice outrages him. Such a community actually can liberate the poor and oppressed and offers so much more than all the political theories and social theories of this world. And finally, such a community is powerful evidence of God's activity in the world. By this, shall all people know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. How would it be when you're next talking to someone, and I hope you do talk to them, about experiences of racial injustice or uh, uh, prejudice, gender prejudice, or, or people who have less being exploited, all of which is part of the daily lives of lots of people. How would it be if you could say, do you know what, you should come to Pearly Baptist Church. The way those people love each other. I'm telling you, the only explanation is that God is present among them. Let it be so.